My favorite novel, and I like many novels, is uh, Cry the Beloved Country by a South African writer written in 1948, right before apartheid became official policy in South Africa. And the message in that novel comes through loud and clear that the only hope for a completely broken society that has several broken cultures is the way of Jesus. The two main characters are a poor Zulu pastor and a very wealthy white farmer of English descent named James Jarvis. The Zulu pastor is called Stephen Kamalo. Late in the novel, the weight of ter the just terrible circumstances, the breakdown of this society has affected both of these families, and it seems like there's no escape. But late in the novel, there's a turn. And it comes like this. The young grandson of James Jarvis, he comes by the church where Stephen Kamalo lives in his, the rectory, his house is right by the church. The boy asks for some milk. And the pastor apologizes because there's no milk. And that is because the cattle have stopped producing the land being so bad that the cows aren't healthy enough to produce milk. And the boy sits there and he wonders aloud, what do the children in this village do with no milk? And Kamala leans and whispers, they're dying. That evening, the older, the grandfather Jarvis sends a cart with milk to the village. The very next day, a sick child recovers because of that milk. It's a notable turn in the plot. Things begin to take on hope. Milk becomes a symbol of hope. Milk. Um, but it can only have that function when it's shared, when the milk is being passed. When there's this recognition on Jarvis's part that what he has freely received, he must freely give. Until reading that novel, uh, I never really ap appreciated the idea of the promised land as the land flowing with milk and honey. That was a nice phrase, flowing with milk and honey. But the image is conveying endless gift, the bounty and the goodness of God, sustaining life. And it's sustaining it not only for survival, but sustaining it with and for flourishing and for sweetness, richness, not eking out life, but abundance. We are spoiled. Let us admit we're spoiled in the West. And that means some of the sweetest passages in the scripture just fly by us. Some of the most powerful gripping images, they just rush by because we harvest our food from the grocery store and uh, we, we fetch our drink from the tap and the soda fountain. So convenience, immediacy are great, but they come at the cost of lost wisdom. They come at the cost also of proven faith, faith that's tried and stretched. For most of history, milk is hope and prosperity. 
for us it's strong bones. That's interesting, isn't it? Milk is hope and prosperity. Water is life, peace, satisfaction. Wine is joy and celebration. So here again, the words we've already heard this morning from Isaiah. Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Which one of us has never felt the need of those words? Come, all who are thirsty. Come to the waters. To thirst. To thirst is a gift. To thirst is a God-given gospel message written into the fabric of all of creation. Without water, we perish. Everyone everywhere knows that. We all perish. Every living thing perishes, as we all know. Just normal living dries us out. Day to day, just going about our business dries us out. But even more, do we thirst in dry places, dry climates? The creator, he wrote the sign into his design, we are dependent. That is a message that is written across the fabric of creation. We are dependent. Our lives are sustained by a gift that comes from outside of us. And when we lack it, even for a short time, we begin to long for it. Thirst. So we are every day reminded that we were not made as independently sufficient. We're not made like that. In fact, nothing was made like that. So God has written this regular reminder that we are such things, the kind of thing we are, requires grace. Without the kindness of God, the whole earth would shrivel and die in short order. Today, without the sustaining grace of God, the whole earth perishes. And the Lord, in this, the Lord shows that his reign falls on the just and the unjust. His kindness and his mercy, they're every day extended to the rebels of the earth who hate him, who call him by false names, who make false attributions to him, who assign him false traits. He gives them a gift. He sustains their lives with mercy and kindness every day. So if just going about our business leaves us parched, how much more does the Lord speak in times when we have exerted ourselves? When, when we get really overextended? Thirst tells us that we get in trouble fast. 
It tells us that when we pour out our energies, that when we pour out our strength and we, we give what we are to something, we have to be refreshed by the grace of God. When we are extending, we need his grace. If we feel it in the everyday stuff, if we feel it just going to work, just brushing our teeth and putting on our clothes and having normal conversations with people, and that empties us out, how much more when we are stretching beyond what's just every day? How much more when trials and challenges, they press us and they strain us? So when we struggle to try to solve what we cannot solve, when we try to lift burdens that we can't carry, that we weren't made to bear, we weren't designed to bear these kinds of things. When we try to fix someone or to fix something that no human power can fix, we dry out. Say that very directly. When we try to do something we weren't made to do, we dry out fast. And sometimes, though, we're so used to the the condition of being parched, thirsty, that it takes those extreme moments. Those almost become a gift. Extreme thirst causes us to feel it, causes us to feel what we've been doing for a while. And it's then that we can hear this is why it's a gift. It's then we hear the call, come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters. And the Lord says through Isaiah, he says today, he says right now, come for water, come for wine, come for milk, come to be refreshed, to be filled with what these things signify. Come to be filled with joy. Come to be refreshed. Come to be strengthened in hope. You're welcome. You're welcome, he says. You mustn't, though, come with money. You mustn't come for some kind of transaction. The gifts of God are not transactional. He gives them. They are gifts. He who has no money, come. Bring no money and receive without price. Why do you spend yourself for what can never satisfy? Ultimately, all that we desire in life is the things that we truly desire deep down are basic to our design. It's because we bear God's image. We were made in his image. What we really want, when you strip down to, to the core, what we really want is to live the life that God made us for. It doesn't matter how much we have corrupted ourselves, how long we've corrupted ourselves, how much we've tried to satisfy longings in wrong ways, the design is still there. In the deepest, darkest prison, the design is still there. So every man, every woman, every child has this inmost thirst for the gifts of God. 
The thirst is by design. And we thirst for his love. We thirst for his approval. We thirst for joy with him, for peace with him, with others. It's how we were made. So it's this thirst that's there in all of us. It's this thirst that drives us to idiotic things, stupid things, false gods that fill us with poison. It's this thirst that drives us to dig our own wells. To say, no, thank you for the gift. I will find it myself. We dig our own wells. We try to make the world give us love, approval, joy. The things we were designed for, we try to get it from the world. Make it give us that. Happiness. And so we work, we strive, we manipulate, we fight, and lie. But the thirst is there in all of us. I hope we can agree on that. The thirst is there. And the Lord says to all, I give. Come, all who are thirsty, I give. I think this is evident that the the Lord gave the prophet Isaiah tremendous gifts, tremendous poetic gifting. In verse 2, he says, we're in chapter 55. Following that verse 1, in verse 2, he concludes, listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Well, how do we receive these gifts that he offers? He says, come. How do we receive in verse 3, he shows the meaning of these symbols he's been working with in verses 1 and 2. So verse 3, he says, Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. This is God's answer to the universal thirst for life. This is the, his answer to the thirst for peace, for contentment. He says, in effect, truth flowing from his mouth is what sets your world in order. Truth flowing from his mouth sets the world in order. Truth flowing from his mouth sets the little world that is each person in order. Listen to me. Incline your ear, come and hear that your soul may live. Eat the word. We eat the word by hearing. God here, he is, is addressing the sad condition of every tribe, nation, and ethnic group. Since the very fall in Eden, every people, the human condition became souls fallen into darkness, death, and the desert of existence. This is what we inherit from Adam and Eve. It's the state of rebellion against our creator. Rebellion against our creator is the place without light. It's the desert place. 
no longer enjoying the, the personal glorious presence of God, which we think of as light, each soul inherits this condition without the word of life, inhabiting him and her. Think, think back to Eden. The presence of God, glorious and personal, walking with them, instructing them in the ways of life. All that they received was his word of life. In rejecting that word, that is our inheritance, is rejection of the word of life, dryness. And so there they were left and have been left with a malfunctioning soul made to live on the word of life, but still longing for it, still longing and still trying to work properly without the thing that makes us work properly, still, still trying. And then when the clock runs out on the human body, the soul would slip into joyless, empty existence. If you look at ancient cultures and their views of the afterlife, that describes the predominant view of the afterlife, including how the Jews imagined it before the coming of Christ. A bodiless, empty, joyless existence. So, when God speaks to his people through the prophet Isaiah, his words, this is, this is powerful what he's giving. His words breathe a hope that we easily take for granted because we've heard it so much. But 700 years before Christ Jesus, God was saying he offers life to human souls. This imagination of joyless, empty existence, that is not. That's not for you. That's not for you, my people. He offers life to human souls. So the thing that humans rejected at the beginning, God's word of life, he holds out to all who are thirsty for it. Just come, just come, just have ears. Have ears for his speaking. If you will accept his words, he says, and you accept his authority to reorder your world, to reorder your life, then you will find life. You'll find new life working its way through your soul, and that new life will carry on to something everlasting. In ancient Israel, this is some context now, this word was coming through Isaiah and coming through other prophets. It came against voices all around at that time that were saying in times of trouble that the people should look to other gods that they should also look to their own power. And so God here said that instead of trusting political maneuvering, because they did that just as much then as we do now, and in tr instead of in, uh, trusting moral compromises, they were going to be safe and secure. They thought, we need to, we need to fix things with these uh, pressing empires. We'll probably need to compromise morally. God says they would find salvation by trusting these words and trusting them as God's authority. A big part of that trust, back in 700 BC, that's around the time Isaiah is speaking, 
was accepting God's promise in verse 3. Here, back to the text. I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. What is he talking about? God had promised to David, this King David, that he would make his house stand forever. One of his descendants, one of the descendants of King David would establish God's people as sovereign over the whole world. And the peoples would come to Israel and that that king would rule forever. And God promised that he would never take his love from the house of David. He would never take his love from this people. That was hard to believe at times. That was seriously hard to believe in the days of Isaiah when Assyrian armies came to the northern ten tribes and took away thousands upon thousands, village after village, town after town, and scattered them across the Assyrian empire and replaced them with peoples from those lands. Jerusalem escaped Assyria. God intervened. All the rest of Israel was taken. Judah, centered at Jerusalem, was spared. At that time, Isaiah was shown visions that the Babylonians would come. And this judgment that they had escaped would actually fall through Babylon. That thousands of Jews would be taken to Babylon. The temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed. Every stone of that city would be thrown down. And he prophesied clearly, destruction was going to come on the people of God. And yet, this is in the book we're reading. It's in Isaiah. And yet, this word comes through as well. Right along with that message, God spoke of his steadfast love. Judgment was going to come, but he would not abandon his people. They are his beloved. And he would not set aside his promises to King David that his people would rule. That he would, in fact, work through David's heir. He would bring peace through Israel to the whole world. He would bring prosperity to the world. Well, this sounded impossible, doesn't it? I mean, as we think about what was going on, this sounded impossible in the midst of trials and darkness that Israel then experienced. This sounded impossible. So if you can imagine... Israel or Jerusalem, totally destroyed, no king, no throne to sit on if there was a king, everything this people valued, everything that uh, gave meaning to their lives, to their identity, everything that held them together as a society, gone. It's nothing. It's just destruction. You can begin to, to see, you can have a graphic picture of how this prophecy worked. There came a day for every Israelite person when they had two options. This is kind of the day we all fear when we're left with these two options. Abandon hope in the promises of God. Give yourself 
to Babylonian culture or American culture. Give up to the dark gods and try to make a new life. Just try to eke your way through. That's one option. Or against all evidence of their eyes. Against everything that the messages around them are saying, believe the word God had said. Go into the land, live among hostile people, people that kind of hate all that you are, and yet hold fast. Hold fast to the hope that one day God would come and fulfill his promises. Hold fast to that bit of light that comes through prophecy. The Lord is honest. He is always honest. He knows that these stakes are high. He knows the costs involved. He knew it for them. He knows it for us. Verses 8 to 9, he says, recognizing these stakes. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that for which I purpose it. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The promises that he's spoken will be fulfilled. They will do the work he made them to do. And he doesn't work in the ways that we would. And he sure does not work in the time that we would wish. But he will accomplish what he sets out to do. And when he speaks, he will do it. The promised king came. We're going to celebrate that in several weeks. The promised king came. And he opened the door to everlasting life. Our part is small and it's simple. And yet he's honest about this. It's nonetheless very hard for us. When he says, come. Come and receive without money and without price. Incline your ear to me. We are to seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Return to the Lord so that he may have compassion, for he will abundantly pardon. And this is the conclusion today. We have this hope secure. We have it secure because the word has come. He fulfilled the promise that he made. The king came. The throne is established. The way to everlasting life is opened. And we can now seek the Lord. We can seek him at all times, in all places, because now, by the Holy Spirit poured out, he's always near. He's near to us today. The Holy Spirit of God has drawn near to us. 
He's always ready with compassion. His pardon is written in the blood of the cross. His pardon is, is handed out. And that's the hope that God has promised his people. The fulfillment of an everlasting covenant. His steadfast, sure love for David's house. And for centuries and centuries, they waited in longing. They thirsted. And a few of them found grace. Because in the face of darkness, in the face of destruction, they still trusted. God had promised and he would do it. Because he has fulfilled that promise, we have our hope secure that Christ will come again. He will fulfill his steadfast, sure love for David's house that we have been grafted into. We've been made part of his house, the house that will stand forever, the house of King Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we do find ourselves thirsty. We do find ourselves longing for those things that satisfy. We long for your love. We long for your approval. We long for joy with you. We long for peace with you. So Lord, we ask that you would so work in us by your Holy Spirit that we would settle for nothing, nothing less than you, nothing less than the highest. Lord, sharpen our longings, quicken our longings that we would not settle for less. In the name of Jesus, we pray.